Good morning, Phoenix Bible Church. What's up? It is so great to be back here with you all. It is, uh, it's always a joy for me to be here. Tim, thank you for the invitation to come. And uh, I just love being here with you. Whether you're in the room, whether you're online, welcome. It's great to have you here. You know, probably people look at all this white hair and stuff, and they look at what's going on around us, and like, they wonder, have you ever seen a year like this one? I mean, seriously, 2020, can we talk? I mean, this, this year has been one for the records. It's just, it's crazy. You know, COVID, the gift that keeps on giving, or maybe we'd say taking, uh, the, the incredible outcries for social justice and racial equality, which can't go unheeded. The whole issue, as far as it relates to one of the con- most contentious and divisive uh, elections that we've seen in modern history, uh, it really has been an amazing year. You know, if I look back over the years, 1866, by the way, I was not alive then, okay? So in the 1860s, that would be known for what? The Civil War and its aftermath, okay? The 1960s would be known for civil rights and the whole movement and all the things that were going on with that. Well, 2020, what's it going to be known for? I would say it's known for civil polarization or fragmentation. Now, I know it's COVID, but that's only one of it. Have you ever seen such a polarized time, such a fragmented sense? And I'm afraid that while the church could be and should be an incredible balm or salve that goes on that, a real help, I'm afraid that many of us in the body of Christ has actually been as much a part of the problem as a solution. Unless you pick up stones to stone me for that, you think I'm some heretic or something, Listen to the words of Jesus. Jesus in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35 says, it's the night in which he's betrayed. It's one of the last things he wants to leave with his disciples. And he says, a new commandment I give to you. Love one another like I have loved you. Love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. Okay, now I want you to be honest with me. Would you think that that term, love one another, really exemplifies what's going out in our social media posts? I don't think so. In our private conversations, in our political alliances, in our opinions and all the stuff that's going on, do you think we're really leading with love or with something else? I think we got a problem. And the good thing is, in all of this type of situation, is we need to look at what's happening. In a moment, we're going to look at a text that really speaks to that issue. But we need to understand the problem. I think the problem is this, that we're not applying the right solutions. And we're seeing further polarization, even within the body of Christ, because we're not being the body of Christ. We're seeing people repudiate the claims of Christ. Seeing us as hypocritical and irrelevant. You know, the 23%, according to Pew Research, 23% of the adult population in the U.S. considers themselves nuns. I'm not talking about Roman Catholicism with its nuns and its orders. Not N-U-N-S, N-O-N-E-S, meaning I want nothing to do with any religious group. None of them, all of the above, count me out. 23%, 18% grew up in a Christian home or some other religious group. They, they were religious at some point, but they're saying, I want nothing to do with it. I'm done. I'm out of here. Even those that profess to be Christians, according to Pew Research, 
Say that less pray daily, less attend religious services at least two times a month, and less believe the Bible has the answers for life. Why is that? Ed Stetzer, as the Billy Graham Distinguished Chair at Wheaton College, said this, Many have noted the decline of Christian values can be attributed to a, catch these words, reactive, angry, disengaged, and politically motivated Christian culture that has sought to assert itself in order to win a cultural war that was destined to be lost. We have the best news in the world, but often we have communicated as the right news instead of the good news. And listen to this last statement. Many times we have preferred to be right instead of loving, and we have lost our reputation in the process. I want to repeat that. Many times we have preferred to be right instead of loving and have lost our reputation in the process. He's saying we're more a part of the problem in many cases than the solution. Well, thankfully, we want to look at a passage this morning, a part of the ongoing series that you've been doing in 1 John, entitled The Beloved, and it's 1 John chapter 4. Whether you're here in the room, whether you're watching online, if you want to pick up a Bible and look at that, we're going to look at this. I'm not going to read the entire passage. It's 1 John 4, 7 through 21. And it really expands on what Jesus was talking about in John 13 when he says, this is a new commandment that I give you, love one another like I've loved you. And by this, y'all, all may know that you're my disciples. John, the same one who wrote those words, who heard Jesus say those words, the same apostle writes later in 1 John. And in chapter 4, he unpacks that quite a bit for us. Now, I'm going to go through it. We'll cover the whole passage, but it's just going to be in more bite-sized chunks. I'd like to give you some different things that I believe that John is saying about this love and how it's really something we can see happen but I'm going to take it in more bite-sized pieces. The first thing that we can see in verses 7 through 8 is this. It's logical for you and for me as a follower of Jesus Christ to express love for one another because love is in our spiritual DNA. That's our identity. That's who we are in Christ. Because we have Christ's DNA within us and God is love, Christ is love, then you and I also, it's logical that we would demonstrate Christ-like love to those around us, isn't it? That's a part of who we are. Beloved, let us love one another, he says in verse 7, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love, as Jesus did, does not know God because God is is love. Now, I want you to notice the last part of that. He's not saying you're not a Christian. He's eliminated that last line, the whole thing about being born of God. He just says, you don't know God. You don't really know. You may know about him. You haven't come into a place. Your faith may even still be somewhat infantile, somewhat immature, because you may be a Christian, but if you're not walking in love, you don't really know God. You're not experiencing him in his fullness, in his capacity. And you're not experiencing the Christ life like that is really yours. So open up, free yourself up, live it because that's who you are. And trust him with the outcome. It's an amazing thing because love is from God. And the person who calls him his father, our father, should demonstrate that. People should see the reflection, the family resemblance, if you would, in us 
When they see us, they ought to see Jesus. When they see us, they ought to see God. And demonstrating of love is a key way to see that happen. And the results can be amazing. Um, over the 40 years that I've been involved in ministry and pastoral ministry, I've had the opportunity to travel different places around the world. I was in Russia in 1991, right after the wall came down. But one of the greatest things that I saw was in the jungles of southern Mexico in a little village called Tepozanalco. Now, you need to know about Tepozanalco. This, this was a village that was known for its drug growing. The federales would come in and they would spray the crops, but the men in this village predominantly, their occupation was growing drugs. A German missionary heard about them who lived in Mexico, strapped on a backpack, went into the mountains, found them, and began to live among them and share the good news of Jesus Christ. And one by one, those drug growers began to know Christ. Well, they couldn't continue to be Christian drug growers, so they understood their life had to change, so they started growing tomatoes, and they started cutting trees and doing lumber and all that type of stuff. Then they knew that there was a problem in their village. And that is that there's intense rainy seasons in that part of southern Mexico. And so they decided, nobody taught them to do this. It was a part of God's word and his spirit who did this, I believe. They said, you know, it's not right for us to fix up our houses until the house of every widow in our village, the ones who are Christians and the ones who are yet to come to know Christ, that we will fix the roofs and the houses of every widow in our village before we do it on our own. Does that sound like Jesus to you? Does to me. Does that sound like love to you? Does to me. Is there any wonder that almost that entire village came to faith in Jesus Christ? And what were they doing? They're living out what Jesus' half-brother James says. This is pure religion and undefiled. To visit the widows and the orphans in the day of their distress. People that can't pay you back. That purifies motive somewhat, doesn't it? There's no quid pro quo. There's no, I'll scratch your back, but I expect you to scratch mine. That's the way the world loves. That's not the way Jesus loves. And they did it, and an amazing thing happened in transformation of the entire village. Another point in this is in verses 9 through 10, and that's the true meaning of love is clearly seen in Christ's sacrifice, his sacrificial love for us. It requires sacrifice, and it's a choice. It says, in this, the love of God was made manifest. In other words, was made clear. It's like you go to the optometrist or ophthalmologist and they put those lenses on. Is this clear or is that clearer? And in this type of thing, it's made manifest. It's made clear. The love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son, his uniquely born son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. He initiated, and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation, that's a big theological word. You know, I got like 25 years of education. I can barely spell the word. You know, I mean, what does propitiation mean? It sounds like if you do, you're going to clean it up, right? I mean, it doesn't sound good. Propitiation is sort of like redemption. It's where Jesus satisfied the penalty for your sin. He paid the price for our sins. He judiciously and forensically satisfied our debt. He paid the price through his death on the cross. Now, let me put it to you a different way. 
you know, 13 years ago in 07 to 08 and that type of thing, there was a massive recession. A lot of people lost their homes and we may see that yet as a result of COVID and all like that type of stuff. And, and so it would be like this. Someone found out that you were about to lose your home. They sold their home, took the equity out of their home and paid yours off and said, here, I'll give this to you. Seriously? You're kidding me right now, right? No, I'm serious. That would be paying your debt, a debt that you couldn't afford to pay. But this person sacrificed that your debt might be paid. That's propitiation. Now, it doesn't sound like a dirty word anymore, right? It sounds really nice, really great. Praise God. So it's a choice, and it also involves sacrifice. C.S. Lewis, most of you probably heard of C.S. Lewis, started as, an, as a skeptic, agnostic, maybe atheist, I don't know, according to his words, became, came to know Jesus, became one of the premier uh, spokespersons, wrote Chronicles of Narnia, a whole bunch of other great, cool stuff like that, but always pointing people to Jesus. In his book, Mere Christianity, if you've never read that, get it and read it, but read this chapter if you don't read any of the rest of them. It's a chapter called Charity. And charity in a British sense means love. Okay, so when you hear charity and you hear British, that's love. Here's what he says. It's a long quote, so hang with me. You're, you're an astute group. I can tell that. You're used to study and all that type of thing. I believe you can hang with me. Listen, love in the Christian sense does not mean an emotion. It's a state not of the feelings, but of the will. That state of the will which we naturally have about ourselves but must learn to have about other people. I pointed out in the chapter on forgiveness that our love of ourselves does not mean that we even like ourselves. It means that we wish our own good. In the same way, Christian love for our neighbors is quite a different thing from liking or affection. We like or are fond of some people and not of others. It's important to understand that this natural liking is neither a sin nor a virtue any more than your likes and dislikes in food are a sin or a virtue. It is just a fact. But of course, what we do about it is either sinful or virtuous. Now, I'm going to hit the pause button there. I can guarantee if we took a survey of the room, you'd have different likes and dislikes in food. Some would like Mexican food. Some would like Asian food. Some would like European food. Nobody likes England food, British food, okay? Uh, some might even like sushi. You like sushi? Sinner. Sinner. No, we don't accuse people because of the type of foods that we like or activities. That's just a normal thing. That's a part of life. There's nothing wrong with that unless we judge one another. Like activities, I love sports, I love hunting, I love fishing, I love that type. By the way, a guy just took me out this week. He called me up and said, hey, I'm hiring a guy to go up to Lake Bartlett, bass fishing. Just wondering if you'd like to go with me. I'll pay the whole thing. I said, I'm there. And he said, he told me when he picked me up, he said, I've decided this stage of my life, I want to spend more time with people I like. I said, I'll be your friend any day. <laughs> you got a bass boat, I like you. <laughs> okay, so anyway, the whole point was, some people would think that's stupid. Why in the world would you get up at four o'clock in the morning to go fishing? That's ridiculous. One jerk on one end of the line waiting for a jerk on the other end of the line, right? That's stupid. Now, we don't judge each other that way. Those are normal things. So let's not beat ourselves up either. If you don't like somebody, that's not the issue. 
Are you living toward them in love? Listen to what the rest of them says. The rule for all of us is perfectly simple. Don't waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the greatest secrets. When you're behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love them. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him even more. But if you do a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. Consequently, though Christian charity sounds like a very cold thing to people whose heads are full of sentimentality, and though it is quite distinct from affection, yet it leads to affection. The difference between a Christian and worldly person is not that the worldly person has only affections and likings and the Christian has only charity or love. The worldly person treats certain people kindly because he likes them. The Christian, in contrast, trying to treat everyone kindly, finds himself liking more and more people as he goes on including people he could not even have imagined himself liking at the beginning. Two things. One, love is a choice. It's not an emotion. There's an emotional component, but at the bottom of the day, biblical love is a choice. It's choosing to act towards someone in a way that advances their best interest. Secondly, it's not about who we like and who we don't like. Lewis goes on to say, he says, if you find yourself dealing with the person in love, you will find yourself liking them more or at least disliking them less. I like that statement. That works for me. Third thing in verses 11 through 16 says, when we follow Christ's example of sacrificial love, we reflect that Christ lives in us. And you're going to notice a word that's said multiple times in this passage. It's called abide, 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 abide. And it's the word that talks about where a person makes their home, where they live, where their safe place, their their good place, their secure place. Where do they live in life, not where they're visiting. So look at verses 11 through 16 and listen to what it says. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to also love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another then God's abides in us and his love is matured or perfected in us. Now, it doesn't say these words, but it's saying no one's ever seen God, but if you live in love, people see God in you. They see God in your life, how you abide in him and he abides in you. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testify the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. You think that word abides sort of important there? Yeah, the repetition over and over and over and over. It's like all these waves are cascading in. Some of you, maybe if you've read the gospel of John and you've either heard the example that Jesus used with his disciples in the upper room in John 15, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. By the way, the command in John 15 is never to bear fruit. A lot of preachers get this confused, not Tim, but a lot of other preachers. 
abide, you know, bear fruit, bear fruit, bear fruit, bear fruit. We're not commanded to bear fruit. We're commanded to do what? Abide in Christ. To let his vitality, like a branch that's on a trunk, like that branch draws its strength from the main trunk and from that which is rooted, so you and I as followers of Jesus Christ draw our sense of life, our sense of purpose, our sense of authenticity, our sense of vitality from Jesus, and Jesus lives his life through us and produces spiritual fruit. You see the difference in that? Not to wear yourself out, trying to bear fruit. Abide in Christ. It'll happen naturally. And people will see that it's Christ in you that's the hope of glory. Christ in me that's the hope of glory. Not just pat us on the back. Jesus said, let your good works shine before men so that they may pat you on the back. Is that what it says? No. So that they may see the Father and glorify him who's in heaven. But they see Christ in us. He's abiding in us. His spirit is demonstrating that he is resident in our lives. A great example of this as far as the sacrifice is how Jesus, in John chapter 13, the very first part of that, this is the night he is he's going to be betrayed. He's with his disciples at the Last Supper, we would call it. And it says that having been loved his own, he loved them till the end. Uh, here's how he showed it. When they came in, there was no servant to wash each other's feet. Their feet had become dirty and grimy from walking around Palestine and the whole countryside from place to place. They laid down, they reclined at a meal. And so you got, who wants somebody's stinky, dirty feet right in your face or behind your back? Not me, not you. Well, not them either. So they would always have a servant there. Well, there's no servant to do it. So who takes on the role? None of the disciples, because they're going like, mm, not me. I do that, it's going to tell everybody what the pecking order is, and that I'm less important than the rest of everybody, so I'm not doing that. So who does it? Jesus. He takes a basin of water, girds himself with towel, and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. And he says to them, do you know what I've done for you? I'm your master, and I'm your Lord. You call me that, and you're right, I am. He wasn't suffering from any lack of, he didn't want them to like him. It wasn't because he had some misconceived notion of, oh, I'm just a worm. I'm not very good. He said, I'm the master and Lord. I chose to do this. If I do this for you, so you should do it for one another. I set an example for you. That's the picture that's here of Christian love. There is a, an apologist. Apologist is not someone that goes around saying, oh, I'm so sorry. I believe in Jesus. And Apollos is someone who makes a defense for the faith. And his name is Aristides. Aristides wrote this to the Roman emperor Hadrian, describing to him what Christians were like. Listen to the words. They love one another. They never fail to help widows. They save orphans from those who would hurt them. If they have something, they freely give to the man who has nothing. If they see a stranger, they take him home and are happy as though he were a real brother. They don't consider themselves brothers in the usual sense, but brothers instead through the Spirit in God. That's the picture of Christian love. It's love in action, caring for others, sacrificing for others, choosing to care for others whether we like them or not. Third thing we see, or another thing we see in verses 17 through 18 is living a life of love 
results in confidence rather than fear of God's judgment. Now listen to this one carefully. Verse 17 and 18. By this love is perfected or matures within us that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Now remember, he's talking to Christians here. So I need to take a, a side check and just tell you, for you and me, if we have a faith in Jesus Christ, then all of our sins, the moment we accept Jesus Christ and trust him, all of our sins are taken care of. They're all covered. Our past, present, and even future sins are washed away in the blood of Jesus Christ. So where's the fear come in? We don't have to worry about our entrance into heaven wherever and whatever that's like because Jesus has said, they're with me, they're good. All right? So it's all by faith. It's all by God's grace. It's, we sung about it this morning. It's not something we earn or we deserve. But there is teaching in the scripture that though we are saved by grace, we are, and it's not by our works, we are saved for the purpose of living a life of good works which God ordained ahead of time. And so there is a judgment for Christians, not to get into heaven, but for the sense of reward where God awards us for the sacrifices that we've made in this life, for those things that are done in love for him and love for other people. It's called the Bema Seed of Christ. It's talked about several times in Corinthians. It talks about how the things that we've done in this life will either be gold, silver, and precious jewels, which are refined, or they're wood, hay, and stubble, and they're burned up. We enter into the kingdom, but we do so with loss instead of with reward. Well, it's saying basically, look, if you live in love, you don't have to worry about that day. Whatever it's like, you've got confidence going in because you know that you'll hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. And that could be a whole series. I don't have time for that, but it's a really critical thing. When we walk in love, we don't have to be fearful. I see a lot of Christians that think the minute something bad happens, that oh, God's displeased with me. Oh, no, God, God. And then we figure out, not I didn't do anything wrong, so then we get ticked off at God. That's like a Christian karma. That's not taught in the Bible, by the way. That's the enemy doing that. We need to understand that if we're walking in love, we have to have confidence that he loves me, he's pleased with me, and I can stand and not be worried. If Jesus comes back tonight, or I go to be with him, I don't have to worry about that. I got confidence, because perfect love does what? Cast out fear. The last point that I want to make with you on this is love comes from God and flows through us to others, including our enemies. We love because he first loved us, verse 19 says. If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother, He's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot possibly love God whom he has not seen. Is the logic of that statement inescapable? Sure it is. Because people who are created in the image of God, that's how we express our love. That's why James says, if you've loved one another, you have fulfilled the royal law. Love God and love one another. And this commandment we have from him that whoever loves God must also love his brother. You know, this has been a very divisive political year, among other things. We already talked about that. The National Prayer Breakfast earlier this year in Washington, D.C., 
happened right on the heels of President Trump's uh, impeachment trials and his acquittal the night before it came out that he was acquitted of charges. And then they had the national prayer breakfast. Well, the keynote speaker was from Harvard. He's a professor and author. His name is Arthur Brooks. And his basic emphasis was this, don't let your disagreements over politics lead to contempt for each other. Then he went on speaking, said he recalled speaking to a group of conservative activists and telling them their political opponents were neither evil nor stupid. And it said in the article I was reading, there wasn't a whole lot of applause in the room at that point. Because I think it was too convicting. Then the benediction was done by John Lewis. John Lewis, a civil rights activist in the 60s, a congressman from the state of Georgia for many years, and he was battling pancreatic cancer. It was already a death sentence for him. And you know, he did this video. He did the benediction by video. Listen to what his prayers were. He prayed saying the country needed peace now more than ever. He asked God to bring the country together and prayed Americans would treat each other as brothers and sisters. In his prayer, Lewis recalled facing death when he was beaten while crossing Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama on a civil rights march. And then he said this, I never hated the people who beat me because I chose the way of peace, the way of love, the way of nonviolence. He finally said he never gave up because God helped him and he urged all the attendees to become one family. That's Christ-like. That's Jesus-like. That's love. John Lewis sees this perfectly because he's with Jesus today, having died physically in July of this year. But his legacy lives on. You know, I, I remember reading of a pastor. I never met him. His name's Juan Carlos Ortiz. He pastored in Argentina, in Buenos Aires, Argentina. And uh, he was going to preach to his congregation about how they needed to love one another. And he was preparing this message. He was all ready to go. And he sort of sensed God's spirit, checked his spirit, and said, how many times have you ever preached on this? He said, I don't know, a dozen, 15. You know, they had this conversation going on. He said, is it done any good? And Juan Carlos Ortiz said, no, I don't think it has. So he took a different approach. He got up that Sunday to preach. He opens the text and he says, here's the message, love one another. And then he went and sat down. Now, what would you do if Tim got up and he said, okay, here's the message today. You're used to him speaking 30 minutes or an hour and a half or whatever he speaks, okay? And he says three words, love one another. And he sits down, what are you thinking? Man, it must've been a tough week. He didn't have much time to prepare, okay? Maybe Jaya got sick again or something. I don't know. She, by the way, was here first hour, doing well. That's awesome, okay? So you'd think something was wrong, right? So there's a buzz and... He gets up then a few minutes later and he says, love one another. And he goes and sits down. The third time he gets up, love one another. At this point, people are starting, there's, there's a buzz in the room. And people are not knowing how to handle all of this until one person, and I get out of Ortiz's book called Disciple, says this, finally an elder stood up and spoke and said, I think I understand what Pastor Ortiz means. He wants me to love you. And he pointed to someone in a pew behind him. But how can I love you when I don't know you? 
And with that, he introduced himself and began to meet the people behind him. Others got up from pews and introduced themselves to people they had seen but not yet met. Phone numbers were exchanged. Dinner invitations were extended. Arrangements were made for financial assistance. Before the service ended, someone raised enough money for bus tickets so a family that was there could return to their village. Another man arranged employment for a man out of work, and someone offered an apartment to a homeless family. Here's what this, the most powerful and most remembered sermon Juan Corlos Ortiz ever preached was just three words. What were the three words? love one another in all of its manifest multifaceted grace. Chuck Colson, I grew up in, in a culture and group that I knew more about him than some of you may, but he was Richard Nixon, President of the U.S. right-hand man. He was his hatchet man. He was Marine Corps. He was an attorney. He was ruthless. And he understood what it was, and he was sold out to the whole thing of, of our way of life as Americans and against any other. He said this in his book. He came to Christ, by the way, as a party guy, went to jail, went to prison because of his involvement in Watergate scandal. And while he was in prison or just before he went to prison, he came to know Jesus, and it changed his life radically. He founded Prison Fellowship. Prison Fellowship is in every state in the U.S. now, helping prisoners come to Christ and grow in him. That's love. And in 112 countries around the world. Well, he wrote this book, Loving God, and I just want to read this to you in conclusion. He says, my question then for individual believers and thus the church is this. Do we view our faith as a magnificent philosophy or a living truth? As an abstract, sometimes academic theory or a living person for whom we are prepared to lay down our lives? The most destructive and tyrannical movements of the 20th century, communism and Nazism, have resulted from fanatics single-mindedly applying fallible philosophies. What would happen if we were actually to apply God's truth for the glory of his kingdom? The result would be a world turned upside down, revolutionized by the power of God working through individual Christians and the church as a whole. But we will only be weak and stumbling believers and a crippled church unless and until we apply truly God's word. That is until we truly love him and act on that love. That's a preferred future. I want some of that. How about you? Can I get an amen? That happens with people who are standing right with God who've accepted, embraced his love, and who've become a conduit of that love to others. You know, you can't live like a Christian until you become a Christian, until you're born again to this living hope. In a moment, we're going to take communion. I'll explain to you in a second what that means, but here's, here's what that's about. It's an invitation that Jesus established for everyone to remember him. And it starts with people understanding that there's a God who loves you and who wants to have a relationship with you. But you know what he can't? Because he's holy, we're not. We're sinners. We've come so far short of God's standards, it's not even funny. Even those of us that try to live religiously and doing it in the flesh, it's our self-righteousness. It's not Jesus' righteousness. That separates us from him. 
But the good news is this. God loved us so much that he sent his son Jesus to pay the penalty for your sin and for mine, to be the propitiation of our sins. All we have to do is to accept that gift of forgiveness by faith. I trust you. I believe you died on the cross. I believe you were raised from the dead. I ask you to come into my life and forgive me of my sins. I don't know if you've ever done that or not. Maybe you have. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you've just thought, I'd get going to church and I'll do all these types of things. And if God weighs in the balance, then he'll accept me because my good outweighs my bad. Or maybe you've said, I don't know much about this. And I just, it sounds like a bunch of BS to me. And so I'm going to do whatever the world wants to offer to me. Both of those are sin because it's not accepting the fact it's God's holiness and righteousness, not ours. So I want to give you an opportunity this morning, but even before these elements, we partake of them, to make sure of that, to know that you have your sins forgiven. And that's by simply praying and asking God to forgive you. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Close your eyes. Most importantly, humble your heart. And I want to share with you two prayers, one for those that may not know that you have, and then one for those who have made a decision to follow Christ already. One. If you're not sure, but you'd like to know that your sins are forgiven, just say something of this nature to God. I'm just saying a phrase at a time, and you can just repeat it silently. God, I believe that you exist, that you want to have a relationship with me. But I admit I am a sinner. My thoughts and actions I'm so far short of your standards. And I realize it's my sin that has separated me from you. But I've heard and believed that you love me and that Jesus died for my sins. I place my faith in Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead and ask you to come into my life to forgive me of my sins and to make me the kind of person you want me to be. Pray that prayer. Welcome to family. There's rejoicing in heaven as the angels are dancing over that decision. And if you made that decision sometime in the past, why don't you just take a moment right now in the quietness of this room and thank God for his grace for his mercy, for his love, for his forgiveness. Blaine, hey, we're going to celebrate that through communion. Just take a moment and do business with God.